good to see all of you this evening. Congratulations again to the Galaxians on their eighth child. My maternal grandfather was the oldest of ten boys, no girls. He died when I was kind of young, so I didn't know him very well. But the uh, ninth son, uh, Uncle Cal, I knew reasonably well. He had a dairy farm, South Alabama. I spent some time in the summers down there. He said that when he was born, they didn't have a name for him. They just called him number nine for a long time. <clears throat> so for future children, that's a, maybe a good option. And then when he was in school, he studied about the Reformation, John Calvin, and just started calling himself John Calvin Sharp, and nobody really cared, so it was, the name kind of stuck. This evening, I'd like to read from Genesis chapter 15. And we see some things here which I'll try to explain to you and show the significance of these events. <clears throat> so let me read beginning with verse 1, Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. They did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted four hundred years. And I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Gershites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we confess that there are things in this passage that seem strange to us, uh, 
Uh, there are customs that are spoken of that are not our customs. I just pray that you would give us insight and understanding so that we can have a great appreciation for this passage which you placed in the early part of Scripture, your word. In Christ's name, amen. Why is my umbrella not opening? Theology can be like that sometimes, too. You think you have it all figured out if you don't. Now, an umbrella. <clears throat> Why do I have an umbrella? I want to make a point. I'm going to fold it up again. When we study the Bible and we come to church, hear sermons and Bible studies, a lot of times we become very familiar with certain parts of the Bible. If I were to ask you, give me the names of some of the doctrines that you have studied. <clears throat> you probably would say, well, I've studied uh, uh, justification. Justification by faith. That's good. Sanctification. How the Lord is making us more like Christ. So about the atonement and Christ's death on the cross. The resurrection. And we could go on and name all kinds of of doctrines that we study. And here we're talking about a covenant. We say, well, how does the covenant, let everyone know this is called the covenant of grace, how do we know the covenant is related in that other stuff? Now, there's a hint that it is as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Remember when Jesus took the cup, he said, this cup is the covenant of, some translations say new covenant in my blood. So what did he mean by that? What are we talking about the covenant? Well, hopefully as uh, the sermon progresses, you'll understand a little bit about that. But what I'm saying is that under the umbrella of the covenant of grace are all the doctrines that we consider to be very significant. And they do fit together. They weave together in a very beautiful way. And so part of our problem is we we tend to see things in isolation and not the relationship to everyone. Andrew mentioned to me during the break that he was reading a book called As Far as the Curse is Found by Michael Williams, who teaches at Covenant Seminary. And in that book, Williams does a very good job of weaving all of the things that we know about from the Bible into a consistent coherent story of salvation. Now, what we're going to consider today is really just an introduction to the idea of covenant. It's not everything there is to know. You probably have about, um, well, I have probably about six or seven or eight sermons on this topic. So this is just the beginning. Now, having said that as a broad introduction, let me start with something a little bit more, um, maybe understandable. I read an article the other day that this year is the 50th anniversary of the movie 
2001, A Space Odyssey. Came out in 1968. How many of you have seen the movie? Ooh, okay. <clears throat> A few of you have. All right. It was groundbreaking when it came out. I was working at the college. I attended that summer, and uh, another friend of mine, and I, we were painting rooms and things like that, and we invited our chemistry professor to go see the movie with us, in part because he had a car and <clears throat> could take us uh, down off the Lookout Mountain down to Chattanooga. So we went and saw the movie and really enjoyed it. It was just great. It was uh, groundbreaking for its time. But afterwards, we were talking about the movie, and we said, what was that about? I understand some things. I understand like on the spaceship that's going to Jupiter, there's this computer that goes rogue and how the astronaut kills the computer, which probably a lot of us would like to do to our computer sometime. But we understand that. He turns the computer off. There's this black rectangular monolith that shows up every so often. What, you know, what, is, that, what is that about? And there's all kind of stuff like that in the movie. You, you understand certain things, but sometimes you just don't understand everything. And I think that this passage introduces some things that we understand a little bit about, but we don't quite get all of it. And hopefully we can look at this in a little detail and, and see what we can come up with. So what we find is that God very graciously makes some promises to Abraham, or Abram, later called Abraham. And those promises eventually will lead us to Christ. So those promises to Abraham, who lived maybe 2,000 years before the time of Christ, will lead us to Christ. Now as we see the passage opening up, after these things, that is a period of time has passed before the other things that we've read about with Abram rescuing Lot and Melchizedek and everything. So Abraham knew, at least knew some things about God. That knowledge would grow over time. And at one point it was said that Abraham was the friend of God. But that's not said at this point. We can know about things without really knowing those things. And I think that's where Abram was at this point in time. So I have a question for you kids. Who invented electricity? Who invented electricity? It's a trick question, actually. Well, maybe adults. Who invented electricity? God did. It's, it's a naturally occurring <laughs> substance. <coughs> So nobody invented it. People discovered it. So Benjamin Franklin's given a lot of credit for, for discovering that lightning was really electricity. Franklin had an idea that electricity flowed from positive or negative to positive charges and things like that. And they got shocked uh, when lightning hit a kite and came down and hit this key was in his hand. And he was, wasn't killed, but he was shocked. And then others have come along and done other things with electricity. Uh, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, and that changed, uh, changed the world in very dramatic ways. But there were people even before that, early part of the 1700s, who did experiments with electricity and uh, electricity and magnetism. But did you know 
that not quite 100 years ago, archaeologists found a clay pot that had metal plates in it and a steel rod. And it's thought that they probably put some acid in there, maybe just vinegar, and they created a battery. So maybe they did that so they could charge up their cell phones. I don't, they don't know what they used it for. But they think that there was something to do with electricity even a couple thousand years ago. So just knowing about God is not enough for salvation. But as time goes by, as we'll see in just a moment, Abraham believed what God said, and that was counted as righteousness. The Apostle Paul refers to Abraham in Romans 4 and said, you know, Abraham was a man of faith. He was justified. He was declared righteous, not because of his works, but because of his belief. So we find that from knowledge, we need to move to belief. Some years ago, my wife and I had a dog, a Rottweiler, whose name was Harley. It was our son's dog, but we took care of him for the most part because our son was in the Army, he was traveling a lot. Harley was a big dog, solid muscle, weighed about 90 pounds, had teeth that were really big. And when people would come to our house, at least for the first time, a lot of them were very afraid of Harley. Now, Harley was one of these kinds of dogs that would just love you to death. And if you were talking, he would come up and would uh, take your sleeve in his mouth and kind of pull your arm toward his head. And some people got freaked out by that, thought he was trying to eat them. <clears throat> and people who were really afraid, I would say, don't worry. Harley's not going to bite you. He's not going to eat you. Uh, human flesh kind of upsets his stomach. He doesn't like to do that. And, and uh, I always like to tease people like that. But anyway. But once you would scratch Harley's ears, to scratch under his chin, he would not leave you alone. He would follow you around the house. He would lay at your feet. He could scratch your stomach. He, he loved to be loved. Now, how would you show that you really trusted Harley to be a good dog? You would have to touch the dog. You'd have to pet the dog. We can't say that we believe something without acting on that belief. So we pet the dog if that's uh, proof that we really trust the dog is okay. We can't say, oh, I know somebody, he's a really good financial advisor. But I would never, ever in my whole life put my money with him. That doesn't make any sense. Because if we trust somebody and believe in somebody, we're going to act on that belief. And so Abram believed what God was saying. He believed that he would have a son that would be his heir. Now, he didn't quite have everything right yet. We understand that. Eliezer from Damascus, uh, probably a good guy, but he's not going to be Abram's heir. And um, later we'll read about some other things that goes, goes on in Abram's life where he does have a son Ishmael, but uh, it's not by his wife, Sarah. He would have a child of promise. Now, I think Abram was about 85 years old at this point in time. 
an old guy by our standards. It was about 14 years later that he had a son. He was even older. His wife was even older. There was no way that they were going to have children unless God works in some miraculous, supernatural way, which he does. But that's a story for another passage. He's told you'll have descendants as numerous as the stars. Now, if you live in town like this, you know, you go outside at night, you look at, you see maybe, what, 50, 100 stars, like a big deal. But you get out in the country where there are no lights around, and the sky is just ablaze with stars. I remember some years ago when my wife and I would help at a Christian camp, and at night, when most everybody was gone to bed, the lights were turned out, would go outside to a, a kind of a dark spot even there, and look up, and this, it was just brilliant with stars. And when you first looked up, you say, hey, it looks, it looks kind of cloudy up there. And you realize, no, those aren't clouds, those are stars. That's the Milky Way. We're looking through the plane of our galaxy. Could you count those stars? I couldn't count them. There are too many. So Abram's going to have a whole bunch of descendants. But start with one child. And then something's going to happen where these descendants have to go into a foreign country where they'll be servants for 400 years. We know that took place when Joseph went down to Egypt and then the rest of the, uh, his family came down to, to survive a famine and so forth. That was probably 150 years after this, maybe even more than that, depending how you count a generation. So from the time that those descendants of Abraham come back into the land of Canaan, it was a long time. And Abram was dead and gone, but he trusted God that this would take place. This land which he was on would be his. He would have blessings galore, and he would be a blessing to people. And he was given those promises which he really held on to. We don't understand all the reasons why God delays action to accomplish his will. We just know that he does. We know that he has a reason why he does things the way he does. Some of you know Bruce Marker, one of the elders from Emmaus Road, who's been very, very sick for, for months and months, back, even back before Christmas. He was in the hospital. I saw him yesterday. I was talking to him, and we were talking about this. And Bruce made a comment. He said, I, I don't know why I'm still sick and not getting better. The doctors don't seem to know really what's going on. But I know God is a good God, and there's a reason why this is happening. And he's right. In all of our lives, there are things that happen that don't necessarily make sense to us, but we know that there's a reason why those things happen. Sometimes we're told the reason. Sometimes we're not told the reason. But we know that we serve a good God who is always faithful to his promises and will work for the good of his people. Well, if we kind of keep going through the passage here, we find that 
God does some things to show Abram that he really is going to keep all of his promises. And without explanation, he tells Abram to bring these animals. Abram does and cuts them in half. Uh, Some think that they were cut lengthwise in half, and then part was laid against part. But the birds he didn't cut. He just killed them and laid them apart. So there's like a little path of dead animals that was before him. Birds of prey came down. Abram drove them away. Some things you would read sort of allegorize the birds. These represent whatever. I think they were just birds. You know, they just saw easy pickings. You know, these dead animals right there. Uh, there's only one old guy there. What's he going to do? So they come down. The, Abram probably picks up a stick and beats them off and, and they fly away. Then he falls into a deep sleep. And then in this sleep, he's told these things about what is God, God's going to do about his people. But he also sees a smoking pot and a torch that are representative of God, representative of God, and they go through these animals. Now, we're told down in verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give the land, and he enumerates the property that he's talking about. We've heard of covenant. We might know a little bit about it. But covenant was something that was part and parcel of life in the ancient Near East. A covenant was the means whereby a suzerain or a high king would make promises to the vassal kings that would be under him. And the suzerain, the high king, would say, I'm making this covenant with you, and these are the things I'm going to do for you. I'll protect you, I'll provide things for you, I'll help in this, that, all these things. And what you have to do, you have to pay taxes to me, you have to give men for my army, you have to give women for the harem, all, all these things they would have to do. So the animals would be cut, as spoken of here, and then the suzerain king and the vassal king or kings would pass through those parts. And they were saying, both parties, if I do not live up to my end of this agreement, may the fate of these animals fall on me. May I be destroyed just as these animals have been destroyed. Why doesn't the Bible give us all this explanation about what a covenant is? Because this is what they knew. This is how political stuff operated during this time. From Persia over to the, uh, the Middle East, covenants were the, the thing of the day. The Bible didn't have to explain to the people who already knew and we find out now through archaeology that covenants were very common. And there are elements of the covenant, which I'll talk about in just a moment. If you were to write a story and say, uh, my friends and I went on a road trip from uh, Nina, Oshkosh, to uh, San Diego. All right. 
you wouldn't say, we got the car gassed up, we put our luggage in the car, we got in the car, fastened our seatbelts, put the key in the ignition, or if you have a newer car, you know, put on the brake, push the start button, car started, put it in gear, we drove off, stopped at the first traffic light, everything was okay. Everybody knows that. You don't, we know how to drive. We know how to do those kind of things. You wouldn't have to explain that to anybody. It would seem silly and redundant and stupid if you did. So there was no reason to give an explanation of what a covenant was to people who already knew what it was. So we're the ones that are kind of in the dark. But fortunately, as less than 100 years ago, all this discovery was made of all these texts about covenants. If you read through Exodus 20... Uh, the elements of the covenant are even more clear there than they might be here. We have binding contracts as well. Not too long ago, I had to have some document notarized to prove that it was really my signature on that document. So my credit union has a notary. They don't charge or anything. So I went up there, showed her the paper, showed her my driver's license, she said, okay, Bill, go ahead and sign. So I signed. She notarized it, you know, stamped it with this stamp, and it was good to go. could send that off. That was proof positive that I was the one who actually signed this document. When we take out a mortgage, the mortgage is probably notarized at some point along the way. Then it's filed with the courthouse. You are obligated to make payments on that mortgage. If you don't, they will come and kick you out of the house. If you buy a car and don't make payments on it, they will come and take the car away. They don't kill you, not usually at least, but uh, we, we have binding contracts today. We know what that means. But this was even more binding than the things that we do. They don't just take something away, they take your life because that was what you agreed to. A covenant is a relationship between parties. Now, the covenant that God made with Abram, God set all the stipulations. Abraham didn't have anything that he contributed to that. God said, this is the way it's going to be. You can accept it or you can reject it. But you don't want to reject it. So the elements of a covenant, I'm just going to mention these, and again, we could talk about this in more detail. There's a preamble. It didn't find who the parties of the covenant are. Jehovah God, the Israelites, like in Exodus 20. Historical prologue. You were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. And you're now free. Stipulations. What's required of the, the vassal kings by the suzerain king, the high king. Sometimes the stipulations are spoken of in a separate part of the, the document, but uh, they're there. There's a public reading of the covenant so that everybody, not just the kings, but other people hear this as well. And there's an annual renewal of the covenant so that people say, oh, you know, I forgot about that. You know, I'm supposed to send these guys to the army. No, every year there's a reminder of the covenant. There is the deposit each party of the covenant would have their own copy of this contract, of this covenant document. 
in Exodus, we read that when God made this covenant with Israel, two tablets were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Years ago, people thought that, you know, half the commandments were on one tablet, half were on the other. Now they think that one tablet was sort of God's copy, the other tablet was Israel's copy. But those words of the covenant were placed on, or placed in a depository, in that case, the Ark of the Covenant. The parties would call on their gods as witnesses. But we're told that there is no greater than God, so he swears by himself. I will keep the promises I make. I will do everything I say that I will do. One of the things which is sometimes puzzling is, how does the law, as it might be summarized in the Ten Commandments, or even as we speak of it in a broader sense in the Old Testament, how does that relate to our life as believers or anything like that? We have to understand that law is a function of the covenant. The law is how you keep the covenant. And there are blessings of obedience and curses for disobedience. We know in Deuteronomy, near the end of Moses' life, there's a reading of blessings and curses. As there's a reminder of, of Israel's obligation to God. Now, we saw earlier that God brings us into the covenant. So as we're brought into the covenant, we are obligated to do what God has told us he wants us to do. Think of the law. If you summarize the law as we'd find in Mark 12, And what starts out with uh, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus said was a summary of the law. So if we ask ourselves, have I loved God with everything that makes me a person? We say, no, no. Not by a long shot. Have we loved our neighbor as ourself? No. We become irritated with our neighbor. We dislike our neighbor. We wish ill on our neighbors. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. So as we break the covenant, what, what is going to happen to us? The curses of the covenant fall on us. So how does Christ figure into all of this? Christ came as a mediator, someone who could represent us, someone who could represent God. Christ lived a life that was perfect. He did love the Father with, with his whole being. There was never a time when he didn't love God. He showed love and compassion to his neighbors. He was one who kept the covenant. But in his love, he offered himself as a substitute for us. 
And that death which was due us, he took in himself. And the wrath that should have fallen on us fell on Christ. The covenant is a big umbrella that all the particular doctrines we think of find their place. They are woven together in a very unique way. In the Nina Library, on the second floor, in the main walkway, there is a table that has a jigsaw puzzle. All the pieces are laid out. Any patron of the library is free to go up there and work on the puzzle. I'm not a real jigsaw puzzle person myself, so I've never have done that. But I've stopped to look at the progress from time to time. So sometimes you'll see that people have gotten corner pieces put together. Okay. You'll find that some people have little scenes of the big picture put together. Maybe there's some horses, maybe there are clouds, maybe there's a lake. Maybe there's a building, and there'll be these different pieces that are put together. And eventually, people work on the puzzle long enough that everything comes together. And if you were there when that was complete, you could look and you see the whole picture laid out for you. Then that puzzle, I don't know what they do with it, but it's taken away, new puzzles put out. Our study of the Bible is like that jigsaw puzzle. We understand this, and we understand that, and we understand the other, but we don't always see how everything comes together. We know that it does, but we don't see it. But the place where we need to start in our understanding is with the covenant. What does God tell us about the covenant, even back with Noah, back with Abram? What about Moses, David? We learn things in each expression of the covenant. Jeremiah, there's the new covenant, which seems a lot like the old covenant. And then we come to the book of Hebrews, which explains a lot of these things about the covenant to us. In the covenant of grace, the ideas of creation, of fall, of redemption, and consummation fit together perfectly like a well-planned puzzle. We can study all of those elements separately about creation, about the fall, about redemption, about the end times, the consummation of the ages. But we really need to see all those things working together in one whole, one part. We have the beginning of that here in Genesis 15. I imagine more will be said in the chapters that come about this. And... uh, Hope you find it something which is helpful. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we thank you for your word. We know your word gives us exactly what we need. And just thank you for the different uh, things that have been discovered about from history that help us understand some of these things. And for a long time, people didn't understand anything at all about the covenant. And then all of a sudden, they realized this was really a big deal. And I just pray, Father, that you would help us to understand how big a deal this really is as you have entered into an agreement with your people to save them, to save us. In Jesus' name, amen.